Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August the 14th, 2017. It's a Monday. That means I'm back after a weekend off. Hope you enjoyed your weekend. I kind of enjoyed mine. I was going to get the boat out. Like I'm, just, I'm like, I'm going to give you guys some personal stuff today before we get into the show, right? So I was going to get the boat out on Sunday, and it, we were going to get out at about 7 in the morning, and we just had a big storm come in. And uh, I went back to bed. I slept till almost 10 o'clock in the morning. Uh, I realized I probably needed some extra sleep. I don't ever sleep that late. I think the last time I ever slept that late, uh, barring the aftermath of a TSP workshop that goes on for four days of me being up till 2 o'clock in the morning, in a row, or later, as some of you know, uh, was years. I mean, I can't even remember when. So maybe that was just kind of fortuitous, but uh, it kind of bummed me out because we have all these new fancy electronics for the boat that let the boat drive itself and anchor itself and follow contours and all kinds of stuff. Um, and, and Saturday, we uh, we just the wife and I really just kind of hung out, got some stuff done around the farm, And uh, so I had a good weekend, and sometimes we need just to recharge. And I hope that you occasionally take weekends to just recharge, not always to just work on projects. Anyway, what are we going to talk about today? We've got a bunch of feedback. Of course, you know, the one thing that happened over the weekend that's on the TV night and day, I thought about not even covering this, but I realized I had some things to say about this that were not what everybody else was saying. So I will talk today briefly about Charlottesville and what you need to really consider about our country in the aftermath of this thing. Um, I want to talk to you about a new TV series called the Unabomber, Manhunt Unabomber. My wife and I are hooked on this thing. And, and I mean, the bad thing is that we know sooner or later it's got to end, right? Because you know they caught the guy and what have you. And it's based on a true story and all. But it's on Discovery. It's pretty cool. But I'm learning things about Ted Kaczynski that I didn't know. And some of the things that are being brought up out of the Unabomber's manifesto. And what's scary is how much of a freak this dude was, but how smart he was and how right he was about some things. I want to talk about that, about us obeying technology when it doesn't make any sense and what that says about human beings and where we're headed. Uh, i got a question on canoes and alligators. I have a question on silver, gold, and crypto in Venezuela. Uh, I have a question about what I would do with an old hay and soy field. I have an update on my stance on unboxing videos. I made a little snide comment on unboxing videos and actually posted a thing on Facebook, not on the uh, the, the page or the uh, fan page uh, on Facebook or anything like that. I, uh, I posted in my own personal Facebook, like, hey, guys, tell me if you watch unboxing videos and if so, why. I actually was given some reasonable reasons that reasonable, normal people might watch some unboxing videos. So I'll talk a little bit about that because there's a little bit of a marketing lesson here. Um, I have a question for about subsoil. Like, what is the purpose of subsoil? Does it do us any good? And does that mean we should have it in any type of, if, our, if we're growing anything in containers, should there be a subsoil component there rather than just a, a humus or what we would think of as a topsoil? I have a question on um, storing water safely. I have somebody had sent me what I think might be the best article on weight loss ever. I love it. I'm not going to talk a lot about it. I'm just going to make you aware of it and give you a link to it. 
and uh, give you the basics of it. I'll tell you why I agree with it, even though as someone who is very fond of low-carb, no-carb, paleo, primal nutrition, uh, why I would still agree almost 100% with everything in it, even though it says basically it doesn't matter whether they're eating carbs or fat or what have you. I'll, I'll give you my thoughts on that. Uh, and I have a, a guy that wrote a pretty cool article on knife sharpening as a side hustle, and I want to clue you into his article. I want to read. The, it's a bit, pretty long article. I'm just going to read these bullet points on it, and I'm going to talk about side hustles in general, and I think this will be a good illustration of why I think side hustles are awesome. All of that more in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Guys, Jeff's been a long-term friend of the show. He's been a long-term sponsor of the show. I'm talking more than eight years now. I mean, he was pretty much right in line behind Vic Rontala over at Safecastle to be like one of the very first people to sponsor the show, and he's gone nowhere. He does a great job of taking care of you, and of course, the Berkey guy has Berkey water filtration systems. We're going to talk about water storage today because it's important. One of the most important things in the world is water. Without it, we would all be dead. We know that. It's one of the biggest hurdles in deep, deep space exploration. It doesn't have to be complicated, though. But I will tell you this. Every day, somewhere in America, someone drinks water out of a tap that they thought was completely safe. And they end up drinking something they would have preferred not to drink. Sometimes the consequences are big. Sometimes they're small. Sometimes they're not even noticed. But how long and how much? And I want you to think about this. Every time a city comes out with a thing that's like a boil water advisory or don't use the water or something, it's always already been there for a while before they figure it out. So it doesn't have to be that way. If you want a way to drink the best water you can with a system that has no moving parts and cannot fail, check out the Berkey Systems. And for those, check out Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Next up today, KnifeKits.com. Guys, have you ever thought about building your own knife? It's actually dramatically easy if you use a kit knife to start out. And I would say even if you want to learn to forge your own blades, cut your own blades, and, and do your own patterns and all that, starting out with kits is a great way to learn the basics. And I've met quite a few people, actually, that just build kit knives, and they have pretty good little side hustles on building kit knives for people, um, setting up different things where people can basically pick out what they want, and then they just get all the stuff, put it together. And it ain't as easy as like one of those snap-together models. It's a lot more. There's a lot more to learn. There is some real skill in it, but having that blade already fleshed out and all the holes already drilled in the steel and stuff like that does make things easier. You pick your own handle material, your own pins, you learn how to epoxy, you learn how to do your final fit and finish. It's pretty amazing. Check them out, knifekits.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. Well, actually, why I keep saying that because, again, I said that for over a thousand episodes. All right. The year that was. The year that was the year 44 A.D., In the year 44 A.D. from Southpaw Ben, England is conquered mostly. This year, Claudius will return home after the campaign in Britain, declaring it a victory as they had conquered the capital of Vespians. However, the fighting in Britain will continue for well over a decade. My take by Southpaw Ben. This goes to show one major advantage of being part of a decentralized nation. Even when your capital is captured, you just move your base of operations and continue fighting. While this didn't end up working for the British in the long run, it did mean they weren't completely taken over in a single campaign, but only after many years of fighting. Next, I have an imperial cabinet contributed by David Verne. Claudius is the first emperor since Augustus to show an interest in governing the empire. He has busied himself with reforms and directly ruled on dozens of legal cases every day. 
The Senate has proven to be useless, as they were during Tiberius' time, but unlike Tiberius, Claudius wants to get things done. He begins to create an efficient bureaucracy to help him run the government, and part of the bureaucracy is an imperial cabinet made up of capable freedmen. The cabinet was made up of his secretary of correspondence, also known as the chief of staff, Narcius, the secretary of justice, Gallius Julius Castilius, the secretary of treasury, Pallas, and the secretary of miscellany, miscellany, uh, Polybus. The cabinet proves everything he uh, does. Uh, I'm sorry, the cabinet proves to be highly effective, and Pallas is given an award by the Senate for getting the empire out of a massive deficit created by Caligula without seizing everyone's estates. Claudius is still considered an ineffective emperor by the Senate, and everything he does gets done is attributed to the cabinet whispering in his ear. <laughs> My take by David Verne. The wealthier Romans in senatorial and equestrian rank saw clerical work as beneath them until they saw how well the freedmen, secretaries, and clerks of Claudius' bureaucracy were doing. And the Senate was insulted for not being included, even though they were the ones that didn't want to govern. The Treasury, of Sec the, the Treasury Secretary, Paulus, was rumored to be the wealthiest man who ever lived during the Roman Empire. After Claudius' reign becoming part of the imperial bureaucracy was an honor that many men of the equestrian rank used to start their careers. His reforms also made the empire relying more on and more on an emperor Uh, or the executive branch much more effective. There's a couple things here. Uh, miscellany comes from the word miscellaneous. So Polybus was basically the secretary of the miscellaneous. Doesn't sound very important, does it? Now, while I knew what miscellany meant, I did not ever hear of a secretary of the miscellaneous. So I googled it, and it turns out that we used to have a secretary of the... the, uh, the a secretary of the miscellaneous right here in Texas when we were the Republic of Texas. Secretary of State Texas, also known as Miscellany, 1835 through 1896 it was called that. So it's the Secretary of State. It's like the Secretary of all the other shit. That's basically what it means. I just thought that was interesting and I wanted to point it out. The other thing I wanted to point out was that, you know, you look at this guy and you think you can't win for losing like, Even when everything works, or even when most things work, well, he doesn't get credit for it because we just put this cabinet in place. Who's getting these things done? That would be effective leadership. The great leader knows that he can't do everything himself. But the leader that's truly worth having as a leader is the one that not only knows it, but is willing to admit it and give credit to those who assist along the way. That's just the way things really are. And what was going on at this time is, I guarantee you any effective emperor that ever existed, a ruler or king or whatever, had something akin to this. They were just behind the scenes so that the, the, the head guy got all the credit. And these senators were good at taking credit for shit, too, and passing blame, right? So when somebody came out and was willing to do it a little bit differently, of course they ridiculed them. And, of course, there was a preconception. This guy must be a bumbling idiot because he has a speech impediment, right? And things like that back then were even more sharply judged than they are today. So it didn't matter what he did. No matter what he did, he was an idiot. No matter what he did, he was wrong. No matter what actually worked, he was wrong. Now, I'm not sticking up for the guy, but i got to say, this reminds me at least in part of our current president, Donald Trump. There is so much that I can criticize Donald Trump for. Trust me, lots of it, legitimate criticism. But the bullshit that I constantly hear from the left makes me feel like 
That's exactly where Trump's at. No matter what the guy does, no matter what the guy says, if he's wrong, he's really wrong. But if he's right, he wasn't right soon enough. That's how I feel like they're treating him today right now in the middle of this whole thing with, uh, with Charlottesville. So we'll use that as a segue into Charlottesville. I want to talk about Charlottesville probably different than you've heard it from anybody right now. There's basically two narratives. Um, Neo-Nazis are evil, and neo-Nazis are scum, and it's all because of neo-Nazis and it's all their fault, right? That's, that's one. And the president's part of the, it's part of the problem and yada, yada, yada. And then the right's response to this is pretty much a hold on a second. Of course, neo-Nazis are scum. We all know neo-Nazis are scum. Um, but, you know, these Antifa people caused all these problems. And, hey, look at the media hypocrisy here. And they go back through the whole narrative of look how the media reacted when somebody said it was Islamic terrorism. You know, when an Islamic person committed an act of terror and, and, the, and the left was all like, oh, we don't know that yet. And it, it's just one disturbed individual. But now we're lumping everybody in together. And here's the reality. None of that means jack diddly shit. None of that even matters. The fundamental reality is a bunch of white nationalist assholes got a permit to protest, as was their right to protest in a free society. If you want a right of protest and a right of speech, free speech in a free society, then it must apply to all unless what they're doing is the direct physical threat to somebody else. So they got their permit, they went out to do their protest. The Antifa assholes, and they are assholes, were largely bust in. These were paid protesters, though the one girl that was killed actually was a local, and they came out to antagonize and cause conflict with these people. Then one complete shitbag toward the end of the day blew his top, jumped in his car, and ran into a crowd of protesters and was quickly apprehended. It is now in, 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 in jail pending you know, probably arraignment, trial, etc. He's probably not going to get bail. And he's going to be charged, at least right now it appears, with second-degree murder. That charge may go higher. Um, that would be the initial safe thing for the authorities to say, second-degree murder. And that way, when they get all the information together, if they say, hey, we can get a first-degree murder trial on this, they can come out with that. Where, let's say they had said it's first-degree murder, And then they didn't have the case. They couldn't make that case. Because people were asking this, like, well, why isn't it first-degree murder? Well, we don't know yet. That's why. And the reason you would do that is a defensive procedure, if you're the state in this situation, is if you come out and say it's a first-degree murder charge, and then you back it off to a second-degree murder charge, then what the defense attorney is going to say is you, you prejudge the crime. Like, they know, like, this is easily at least second-degree murder that we would charge anybody that did this, even if we got the wrong guy. Now, we're pretty sure we got him since we yanked him out of his busted-ass car after he did this, but, you know, everybody is innocent until proven guilty in our system of law. So that's what happened. The, the bigger problem is what's... And there's, there's media bullshit and sensationalism. Dorothy and I were watching this the evening it happened, and, and we were watching Fox News of all places. 32 killed! No... One. One. Well, maybe it was 32. I think it was 19 injured and one killed. And we keep hearing now, what do we keep hearing now? There were three deaths because of this. Two of the deaths were police officers. Tragic as it is, they died in a helicopter crash. Their helicopter did not crash because this guy drove a car somewhere. Their helicopter crashed because a helicopter crashed. Now, if you're an officer and you serve in the capacity of being in a helicopter, there's a possibility of that helicopter crashing at any time. 
doesn't happen often, but it does happen. It sucks. Flying in helicopters has some inherent danger to it. To conflate this action with the death of those two people is a disservice to those two people and to their families. And it's using them because the number wasn't as big as the media wanted it to be. But the real story here is America tearing each other's throats out when most of the people attacking each other are not involved with either group. That's what's going on right now. I'm watching, I'm watching people that I know that have gotten along for a long time on Facebook cutting each other apart, tearing each other down, And then I'm watching something else. I'm actually watching people who follow me make a case for white supremacy. So I want to say this, and I said this very early on, when it turned out some scum, shitbag, pieces of shit from an organization called Stormfront had become fans of my show because they thought I was one of us, one of us. I am not one of you. I have no time nor quarter for racists. And if you are a racist, black, white, green, blue, purple, or otherwise... I'm going to use the F word, so if you don't like it, skip ahead 30 seconds. Fuck off elsewhere, okay? That's what I have to say. If you are a racist and you are in, 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 in part of this community, fuck off elsewhere. I have no time for racists. They're pieces of shit. They're all pieces of shit. Black racists are pieces of shit. White racists are pieces of shit. I was brought up in a family that was taught to be racist. Okay? I, 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 ha I made a kid... A friend in, in school, he was like the only black kid in Pottsville at the time, he became my friend, and my grandmother told me she was ashamed of me. That's how I was brought up. But something in me knew that that kind of shit was wrong. But instead of everybody just saying, well, of course racism's wrong, and these people are shitbags, and by the way, most of these Antifa people, they're shitbags too. No, we're going to fight with each other about it. Why? Because to control a people, divide and conquer. And what has to come before conquer? Division. And this nation is so easily divided anymore. And now you have these pea brains. I just listened to a pea brain. That's what I'm talking about with the whole Claudius Emperor thing. Pea brain on Fox News coming out and saying, Man, what Donald Trump said in his speech today was exactly 100% right. And I don't even think he's a racist, but he didn't say it fast enough. Shut up. Shut up. This is not the problem. Donald Trump didn't cause this to happen. You know what caused this to happen? The state caused this to happen. The state caused this to happen. Here's why this happened. This is all over a freaking statue of a dude that's been dead for well over a hundred years. Robert E. Lee, in the middle of a park. And the reality is the people of Charlottesville largely were opposed to removing this statue, but the city caved, absolutely caved, to the nutbaggery left to take this statue down, and that's what gave place for the protest to begin. And in the end, it's all a bunch of bullshit. It's all a bunch of people fighting over an inanimate object. It's all a bunch of people that are more worried about symbolism than reality. It's all a bunch of people who want to be divided. And you know what? This is what nobody's saying. Both of these groups are relatively small. They're relatively small groups. They're not growing, but I'll tell you, they're not growing fast, but they are growing. And I'll tell you what's fueling them. They're fueling each other. They're fueling each other. And they're fueling each other because there's a whole bunch of peripheral around both of them that aren't really part of the core, but buy into some portion of the other party's bullshit. There is an absolute war, especially from the media and the intellectual left, on white males right now. 
And there's a point when people are told that they suck long enough, they're like, you know what? Whoever tells me not to, that I don't suck, that's who I'm going to side with. And the other side of it is, the entire left is being lumped in with these freaking loons. So eventually they actually start to identify with the loons a little bit because I'm not them, but you know they're not the ones saying that I suck. Because again, divide and conquer. First you must divide if you wish to conquer. And that's all this is about. All this is about is furthering your control and your enslavement by the system. This is tic-tac-toe. This is global thermal nuclear war from the movie from the 1980s, War Games. The only way to win this game is not to play. There, that's the only way to win this game. If you're a fascist, you're an asshole. If you are a global fascist, i.e. Antifa, you are an asshole. I don't want anything to do with either one of you people. I'm not going to make the case for or defend either one of you people. And I have more important shit in my life to worry about than an inanimate freaking object. And if you're offended by an inanimate freaking object, you are a weak-minded person. If an inanimate object sitting there minding its own business can harm you in any way, shape, or form, no matter what it is, you are a weak-minded individual, and you need to work on yourself. Those are my thoughts. Don't expect to ever hear anything like that on CNN or Fox News. I promise you right now. So let's go on to my next uh, one I wanted to study, uh, cover today, study, cover today. Anyway, uh, so there's this new series out. And this kind of plays into the whole way that people are so easily controlled by an object. Um, but it's called Manhunt Unabomber. And it's about the hunt for Ted Kaczynski. And really one of the first major successes of a criminal investigative technique known as profiling. So this is like based, and it's probably about as true as you're going to get coming out of Hollywood. The, the real story of how this one police, actually FBI agent, who had just recently completed profiler training, built a profile on Ted Kaczynski to find him. And through it, And in it, he uses this guy's manifesto. If you don't remember, the Unabomber had a manifesto. Now, the Unabomber was the guy that set off an awful lot of bombs, but only killed a very small number of people. And I wonder if that was by design or intent. I don't really know, because it seems like a guy with 168 IQ set off bombs, if he wanted a lot of people dead, would have killed more people. I just, I just don't know about that. I'm learning more from this show. But in this show, they eventually get him. And they get him on a warrant that was generated by a judge who said there was sufficient evidence to issue the warrant to raid Kaczynski's little Unabomber shack where they find all the evidence they're using in the case. And that case was, or that, that warrant was obtained by basically linguistic profiling. He used certain spellings of words that only came from a certain style guide, and he used certain words that indicated that he was alone, and it was things like that. And eventually they built up enough to say, we think we got the guy. They built a profile. I think it's his own brother kind of dropped a dime on him. So I think you're talking about my brother here. We haven't got that far in the series yet. But, but by the time they got him, in, he, they've got him, they're holding him in prison, but he's pending trial. And they're trying to get him to plead guilty. Because this is all brand new, and they're afraid, legitimately afraid, the judge, when they go to try him, might throw that warrant out, and then they really don't have any evidence, even though they know he's the Unabomber. So the Unabomber guy, Kaczynski, he asked for this agent who did this. And this agent who did this had actually like tweaked out 
and gone out in the woods and lived like Kaczynski to better understand him. And Kaczynski, he had actually gotten into his head in reading this manifesto. And they start having this conversation, and he, of course, he's trying to get Kaczynski to, to, to plead guilty. And one way or another, he does, because Kaczynski, in the end, did plead guilty. But Kaczynski knows he's doing this, and he's playing him because he's smart as shit. But he's also interested in him because he knows legitimately the guy has heard what he had to say in his manifesto and has been emulating him. And he's also fascinated that he was able to find him. And he says to him, he says, so what was it for you in my work that made you really think about the fact that you're really a slave to technology? And this, this officer says, well... It was the part about being controlled by technology. So one night, after I was working all this on all this, I'm out in the middle of nowhere, in the dark, two o'clock in the morning on my way back to my place. There's not a car to be seen for miles. I can see at an intersection, up and down, left and right for miles. And I'm sitting there because the light is red. And I'm obeying this red light, even though it makes no sense in the world for me to obey it. Dorothy and I looked at each other and said, wow. And that is the case. If people do obey the lights and the screens and the signs and the messages, and there's a reason for it that's not so nefarious. I mean, in general, stopping at a red light is not just so that you don't get a ticket, but so you don't get an accident. Because whether you obey the light or not, you know most other people are going to obey the light, including the green one. Right, and, and then that system actually works pretty good. And I think even if we had a private systems of roads, I don't think we would get rid of things like traffic lights. But when we obey the light to the exclusion of logic and reason, does it not say that we're doing that in other ways? I mentioned this on Facebook, and somebody said, "Well, I always leave, and you know, I always pull out when I see a light like that." And I, I'm waiting for the day the cop somewhere shows up and pulls me over for it so I can tell him you know, I am smarter than technology. I'll probably get the ticket, but it'll probably be worth it. And I was like, well, how many people do you think really think that way? How many people just sit there just because it's red and won't go? And I realized something. I generally will. If I think the way is clear, the light's been red a damn long time, and I know the way is clear... And I don't think there's a police officer sitting in the bushes behind me. I will run that light. And I'll do it almost every time. But I wonder, is that why I live a different life than most people? Is it that simple? And is, am I not, am I'm not suggesting you go out and start running red lights. What I am suggesting is you start asking yourself when you're being obedient to something, why are you being obedient to it? Are you being obedient to be, because it makes sense? Like, you know, you should look both ways before crossing the street. Being obedient to that rule makes sense because getting hit by a car will kill you, right? Um, you know, not touching something that's glowing red is a good rule to follow because you'll get burned. So there's certain things that we're obedient to. If we go into some sort of a program with a mentor, a lot of times the mentor may ask us to do something that we don't really see the value in now, but if we have faith in that mentor, we'll be obedient to it because we want to learn. If we go into a martial arts discipline, 
A sensei may ask us to perform a repetitive motion or exercise that doesn't make a lot of sense. And I'm not referring to the bullshit with Daniel-san and Mr. Miyagi. I'm talking about like legitimate martial arts movements and things like that. But you feel like you're doing the point of repetition to the point of pointlessness. But we may continue because we have faith in that teacher and we've seen the results in his students. So there are plenty of places for obedience, willful obedience, logical, well-thought-out obedience to a system or a teacher or a reality. I'll be obedient to a cliff. I won't jump off it unless I have a plan, right? I mean, come on. You know, there's a consequence to being defiant just for being defiant. But when we come to, like, a an ignorant obedience. We're just obeying everything that we're told all the time. Some of those rules are the rules that we don't even think of as rules, like every child should go to college, get a good job, etc. Right? You have to vote. It's a rule. You have to vote. It's un-American not to. There's people that actually believe that with no thought. Now, you can believe that you should vote. You can believe that you want to vote. But most people that get upset when you say you don't vote and they have a reactionary response to it, they've never even actually thought about the real consequences of voting versus not voting. They won't listen to an argument based on mathematics and reality because they're programmed to obey. They're programmed to obey. Anyway, I think this is a fascinating series. I have a link to where you can learn more about it on Discovery's uh, website. Um, I will warn you in advance, for those of you that you know listen to stuff at work or whatever, If you click on the link in the show notes, and I have it flagged for this, they have like a promotional video, and it starts out with a commercial, and it starts auto-playing on you, so just so you know that, because that kind of sucks if your boss is around the corner and all of a sudden your computer is making a bunch of noise, but that's why you should have headphones on your computer, guys. Anyway, uh, I, I think it's a fascinating series, but I'd love to hear your thoughts about people being blindly obedient to technology and being controlled by technology and being blindly obedient to conventionals, rules of convention, rules of the state that don't, that are not actually enforceable. And if you ever caught yourself doing that, and if so, what did you do about it? Are you even aware of the possibility if you pay attention to it so that if it happens, you can begin to correct yourself? Just some thoughts. All right. How about a complete change of direction for this show? Uh, this is a question from Steve. He says, uh, Jack, this is Steve in South Carolina. What concerns, if any, are alligators while canoeing here in the South? I've done the border waters, the Grand Traverse, paddle across the Great Lake, but here in the South with my kids in the front of the boat, I've become a pansy. Are gators a valid concern, or do I just need to man up? They're not much of a concern, but I wouldn't put it as that you just need to man up. You need to be aware of them and the threat that they can pose. So here's a couple things that I think we need to be aware of with alligators. Alligators are far more likely to attack a small child than a large child or an adult. They're far more likely to attack a small dog than a large dog. They're far more likely to attack a large dog than an average-sized person. They're, they, they are big on targets of opportunity. Um, I think the alligator has been maligned a bit, and then it's also been uh, Disneyized a bit, too. And I don't mean to put any pun on the whole poor kid that lost his life at Disney. I mean the whole, you know, Disney world of animals getting along and stuff like that and what have you. Alligators are reptiles. Reptiles have a very primitive brain. They know certain things well, but they don't think intellectually. 
And that means that they're going to respond pretty much the same all of the time based on the individual character of the animal that they are. And they're not crocodiles. And I think that's part of what's made people maybe fear alligators more than they should. On the other, you know, the anti-Disney side, I guess. Um, crocodiles are damn dangerous. Crocodiles pull people right off of banks. Crocodiles eat people. Like, as a matter of course. Like, and I'm not saying all the time, but there are crocodiles that freaking just eat people. Uh, in Africa, there, there are people that just, in certain parts of the country, they just disappear when they go to the river. And for some reason, people just keep going to the river, I guess, because it's where the water is and they have to. Uh, we, we lose sight of how big those animals are. And as big as alligators get, there's some crocodiles that dwarf even very large alligators. So alligators are not crocodiles. So the reason I say that is some of you may live in South Florida, where we do have some American crocodiles, or may venture into places like South America, where we have crocodilians, or someday may go to the land down under or to the dark continent. And nothing I'm going to say here applies to crocodiles. They're their own thing. But you can't rely on an alligator to have any compassion. That's that, and it's just true with snakes. This is true with any reptile. Again, it's a very primitive brain. They don't think with compassion. They don't think with affection. They think with instinct and their nature. And that means the the, the bad news is like you don't have a tame alligator. You might have an alligator that's a little less aggressive. That's become a little accustomed to human activity. Is less likely to bite a handler or something like that. Or worse, you can have an alligator that's been fed by people in the wild that becomes associates human beings with food and approaches them looking for food. This can also be a problem. So you never feed alligators. In a canoe, I have not yet seen any instance of anyone ever, you know, where an alligator came and jumped in their canoe or turned a canoe over or pulled somebody out of a canoe. I would not have very small children hanging over the edge of any low water boat in alligator infested waters because I think even though the risk is minimal, it's too great. So depends on what kind of kids we're talking about here and can they follow the rules and do what they're told or are they kind of kids that are going to be leaning, you know, like two years old leaning over even with a life jacket or what have you. That would concern me. Otherwise, you should be aware of them. Know that one of the main things that people see alligators do, and they actually see this as aggression, it's not. You'll be canoeing along, there'll be an alligator on the bank, it sees you, it slides into the water. And if it happens to be pointed towards you when it does it, it slides in the water in your direction. Why? This is not offensive, it's defensive. If they feel much safer and secure in the water, they view as, you as a potential threat, they're afraid you might harm them. Okay? They have, if you look at what man's done to alligators, it could be a legitimate reason. I'm sure they're not intellectually capable of understanding it, but they are. I think the bigger issue is, while I have very few concerns about canoeing, kayaking, etc., where alligators are, you don't swim where alligators are. This is a totally different thing, and I don't care that you saw the guy on Discovery Channel swim with the alligators and not get bit. When you swim, you look like prey, and it is possible that an alligator will see you as such, and if one clamps down on you and goes underwater with you, you're probably never coming up again. So we don't swim where alligators are. So this is the... The concern that I have often for people who kayak, canoe, etc., where alligators are. It is an activity that people think of as a good summer activity because it's cool, you know, and I mean cool like temperature wise, like you'll be cooler. Well, you won't. When you're in a canoe, you're baking in the sun. Being close to the water isn't very helpful. So I think it's very important to have a way to cool down and a way to hydrate. 
and a way to stay comfortable in the hot weather so that you're not tempted to go swim in water that you shouldn't to cool down your core temperature. That said, I probably, if I didn't see any of them in the general vicinity and had good visibility and had been around for a while and had somebody, you know, in danger of like heat stroke, a quick dunk in and out would probably be worth doing. Um, but you just don't swim with alligators. So that's my, my bigger concern. A way to mitigate this, especially if your kids are younger, is alligators, are the warmer it gets, the more active alligators are. The cooler it gets, the less active they are. So you're going to have less gator activity and less reptile activity overall in fall and spring and winter than you will in summer. And it's more comfortable paddling conditions in my view as well. So that's another thing that I think you can look at there. But, you know, I've... I've been in kayaks, which are much to me much more low to the water than even a canoe. Not, you know, I'm talking about sit on top kayaks with alligators. You know, I could almost reach out and touch. And what I generally would do is stay away from them. I don't mean run from them. I don't mean get frantic. I mean just they're kind of cruising. Look at them like they're another boat, right? You just kind of avoid other boats, right? Because when you the other this is like the one time I can see an alligator. Being a pro two times, I would say. One is if you somehow make that alligator feel cornered. So you see an alligator back in a cove. It doesn't want to be on land around you. And you kind of like, I'm going to go check him out. You go cruising over in your canoe or your kayak, and you're kind of forcing your will on him. Then you might get some sort of a, a defensive reaction, which can be very dangerous. Um, the other time is when they're breeding. Bales get very aggressive when they're breeding, so finding out exactly when gators breed in your area and avoiding at least areas of high concentrations of gators during the breeding season. Uh, and then if you do anything aggressive, you know, hit them with a paddle, poke them or something like that, honestly, most of the time they're probably going to, you know, pull back from you and, and run away. But it takes that one time that you piss off that one gator. And there was a horrible movie that I'll admit that I watched back in the 80s, went around on VCR called Faces of Death. And... It's, it's terrible. It really is. But one of the instances of death comes from a fairly inadequate uh, member of the, I think it was Florida Fishing Game, who decides they're going to lasso an alligator and pull him out of the water and relocate him. And it wasn't even that big of a gator. And he threw the rope around the alligator and pulled, and the alligator didn't like it. And whoop, into the water he went, and that gator killed him almost instantly. So we don't want to mess with him. We don't want to quarter him. But... In, they're, they're inherently less aggressive than crocodiles. They'll pretty much leave you alone. Again, avoid high concentration areas during breeding season. Don't quarter them. Keep a distance. Enjoy looking at them. They're cool creatures. And if you have really little kids, then I would just say, like, that's probably not the place for them. Because it, it has been the case that the majority of people, like, taken off of banks and stuff like that have been small children. And, and the gator, again, it, it's, it's not like, I hate you and I'm going to kill you and eat you. It's just, it's a reptile. And, and, and being God's worked with reptiles my whole life, I'm telling you, there is no such thing as compassion in the world of the reptile. The reptile does not have that type. And I mean, you know, I'm not even comparing them to a human. I'm comparing it to something like a mammal, like a dog, right? A dog has the capacity to be angry and the capacity to be compassionate and things like that. A reptile has a capacity to respond in anger, but only when really physically provoked. And it's more a fear response. But the day-to-day -day response is just instinctual. And that's what makes them somewhat easy to know what to expect from, 
but it's what makes them dangerous. They're never going to have any any concept of like, well, I shouldn't do this, or that person doesn't really mean to hurt me, or, gee, that's a human, even though it looks like a good thing to eat, I'm not going to eat it because it's a human. They, they, it doesn't work that way. It's all in the gator's mind. That is food or that isn't food. That is dangerous or that isn't dangerous. That's 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 the the total intellectual capacity. Keep that in mind and, and, and you know use common sense and you're fine around them. Um, this next one's kind of interesting. It comes from George. George says silver and gold are having an impact in Venezuela right now. An ounce of silver feeds you for months. An ounce of gold buys you a house. Any news on digital currency down there? Has it made a difference? Okay. So first of all, uh, when I heard that, I went, where is this coming from? Where is this coming from? And all I could find, the only supporting evidence of this claim I could find, is from a year ago, from an article on Zero Hedge. Zero Hedge is, at one point, you get an article that's common sense, well-researched, logical, and well-thought-out. And the next instance, you would expect it to be in a magazine that talks about Bat Boy and how aliens had Chelsea Clinton's baby. I mean, it's that bad at times, okay? So I don't mean to add hominin in it. I'm just saying, like, if it's my only source, then I can't consider it a valid source. If I can't find any, and I say this about any journalistic piece, but certainly ones that have shown themselves in the past to be willing to go to sensational levels that have no real editorial control process, you know, multiple contributors, and some of them are good and some of them are wackadoodles. Uh, I think this falls into the wackadoodle world. Um, I, I don't think you're buying a house of, of a, that you would want for an ounce of gold in Venezuela right now. And I don't think you're getting six months' worth of food for an ounce of silver. As far as cryptocurrency, I'll cover that before I go into the, the bigger lesson I wanted to teach you. Actually, Venezuelans are, especially Venezuelans with some level of means, are putting their money into cryptocurrency heavily. Um, specifically, Bitcoin. Uh, from some evidence that I could find Dash and Ethereum for some reason. Those seem to be the three of choice. And it is because their money is becoming so devalued. And it's also because there's tight capital controls in Venezuela, just like Argentina enacted, that makes it very difficult for a Venezuelan with any level of income or means to put their money into something like U.S. dollars, which was traditionally what people would do to protect their wealth is they would go into another national currency that was much more stable. And, of course, in spite of everything we've done wrong, the most trusted currency in the world still today is the U.S. dollar. I don't know if it will always be that way, but it is right now. Well, it's very difficult for them to do. So the one thing that they can do is they can move into cryptocurrency. So it is being done, but it's not being done so they can buy stuff. It's being done as a wealth preservation technique. It's, it's a store of value that because there are exchanges where you don't even need an ID to participate, you know, as long as you can figure out some way to convert cash into any crypto, then you can do anything with it, okay? And I, I'm worried our government is trying to interfere with that, but there's going to be certain places where it's going to be all but impossible for them to do it. it. It really is, because of how crypto works. Now, let's talk about the real issue in Venezuela, though, with this whole concept of you, you can buy six months' worth of food with an ounce of silver. The problem in Venezuela right now is not how expensive the food is. It's that it's not there. It's not there. You can't get it. When it's available, it's not ridiculously expensive like you would think. It's not cheap compared to what it was, let's say, five years ago before the whole thing imploded. 
But it's not some astronomical expense. I mean, if you think about the concept of what you're saying, so an ounce of silver would buy six months' worth of food, well, then what you're telling me is 17 bucks buy six months' worth of food in Venezuela. Because this is the reality. That's what silver's worth. That's what silver's worth. It's worth 17 bucks. And if you're telling me you can buy a house in Venezuela for an ounce of gold, you're telling me that you can buy an ounce of gold for $1,280-ish. $1,300, call it. You really think you can buy a house in Venezuela for $1,300 US dollars? Because if you can, if you can buy it for an ounce of gold, you can buy it for about $1,300 US dollars. Now, if property were so cheap in Venezuela right now that you could buy a reasonable home of any kind, For $1,300 U.S. dollars, there'd be foreign investors bailing out Venezuela simply through acquiring property. So that, that, it, just, it just smacks of bullshit. But it also leads us to the real issue when a nation goes into crisis. And this is why silver and gold play a role in modern survival philosophy, but they are not going to do what the TV tells you they're going to do for you in a crisis. When food is scarce, the problem isn't what the food costs, it's that it's scarce. Now, yes, there are going to be price gouging and things like that, but if I need food, and I'm able to get some food, and I have a little more than I need right now, but I know there might not be any food tomorrow, I'm going to be pretty stingy with it. There, there's probably no amount of silver or gold that will make me part with it if I doubt my ability to acquire more of it. And this is why we should be storing food and resources. Because in a resource shortage, it's not like, well, you'll be fine if you have some silver dimes to buy it with. Silver and gold will probably, in a, a major catastrophic crash of not money, but resources in America will probably be a lousy barter tool specifically early on in a crisis. The reason it might be a little bit different in America is we are the reserve currency for the world. And if the U.S. dollar collapses, then there's not a lot of other places to go other than now crypto and it's always been precious metals. So the lesson of Venezuela isn't hoard silver and gold, which, by the way, the Zero Hedge article I found, which you probably saw rotating around Facebook again, and no one even bothers to check these articles to see if they're really new or if they're a year old before they start putting you know any stock in them. Um, it was probably designed to, to sell you on the idea of buying more silver and gold. And there are people that are literally addicted to purchasing silver and gold. And there's a whole group in the silver stacker movement especially that are absolutely effing convinced that one day, man, the whole thing's going to come down and they're going to have a couple hundred bars of silver and they're going to be able to buy a mansion and, you know, everything. And the reality is if you have an economic collapse, then what you end up with in general is resource shortages. And if you don't have a plan to bridge the resource gap, your money, your gold, your silver, whatever it is, your crypto, doesn't really matter. Now, does that mean that there would be no potential that in some sort of catastrophic dollar event that it might not be extremely profitable to have silver and gold in your hands? No, it doesn't mean it wouldn't be. But it's more likely 
that it would simply allow you to maintain your standard of living than to turn you into some sort of a pseudo-millionaire overnight. All one has to do is look at where modern nations, not third world shitholes, modern nations have collapsed. And I would say the Weimar Republic in Germany is a great example of that. It's often used to sell people on this concept, but nobody ever talks about what really happened. So the mark got overinflated. You need a wheelbarrow full of marks to buy a sack of potatoes, blah, blah, blah. The whole world was dying, blah, yeah. Ah! What they don't tell you is that lasted about two and a half years. And that the age that, that came after it in Germany was called the Golden Era. Germany became incredibly prosperous. And it was the U.S. entering the Great Depression that actually skidded them off of their rails and brought them into their own depression. And then that led to Adolf Hitler and World War II and everything like that. But when they tell you the story, it sounds like, well, the Weimar Republic happened and that gave gave him Hitler. The, the economy basically rebounded. And if you had a bunch of gold before the collapse, after the collapse you weren't rich. During the collapse you weren't rich. You were better off than somebody holding exclusively marks. But nobody got rich because they held gold in Germany. The golden era wasn't about gold. It was about the rebounding of an economy of a developed nation you know, for the time being. So I, I, I don't think you should buy into this at all. That, that's what I'm saying. Let's take another one. Next one comes from Terry. He says, My wife and I are in the process of buying an 18-acre property. I have a question about what I can expect for soil quality out of an old hay and soybean field. The property has about 5 acres of woods and 10 acres of field with a small pond sustaining fish. The creek and the pond have plenty of bullfrogs in them, so I'm assuming the field currently being used for hay can't be too nasty with pesticides and herbicides. The question I have is whether or not I should expect to be able to grow a garden and raise animals on this without doing uh, a lot to get rid of residue. Thanks for all you do. Terry, I don't think you'll have to do much at all. I think nature heals all wounds, and I think the thing would be to find out, you know, if chemical ag was practiced there, and it probably was, what chemicals were used. And, and the most likely thing would have been the use of glyphosate, a.k.a. Roundup, spraying in advance of seeding, killing off the weeds, giving, the, giving some time for the, it to dissipate and its major effects, and then, you know, then seeding hay uh, or other things like that or using selective herbicides. Um, it's probably not the case that really heavy-duty stuff was used because of the, the, the size of the operation. When you're talking 10 acres... And, you know, you mentioned beans, but you really didn't provide me any info about whether that was really going on or not. Um, and, you know, I mean, if it was beans, then Roundup Ready Soy is your primary, you know, soy crop that would use that. But most of these smaller operations like this, hay is what they do, and it helps them maintain their ag exemption. I mean, the soil may be quite a bit depleted, but on the other hand, you know, generally a haying operation... They're growing some sort of perennial grass, alfalfa, etc., and they're cutting it. They're not usually plowing it over and over again. So if they mostly did haying, it's probably not that bad. Now, again, if, if you're in pre-purchase, I would, if there's any way to find out, find out, well, exactly what was used. You know, things like glyphosate, atri glyphosate and atrazine, um, they're not good, but the, they're, they're one good thing about them is they have relatively short half-lives. Uh, glyphosate pretty much is inert and, and nothingness 
at six months. And in most agricultural systems that are designed, whatever active components are left are pretty much washed off, unfortunately, into the groundwater to do their own problems there. And the number one thing that breaks down glyphosate faster is UV light. So unless you totally drench soil, it actually is it, it, it's cleaned up by nature pretty quick. My problem with it is when it's being sprayed directly onto the food that we're eating and it's being taken up into that plant and it's bioaccumulating in that plant, which we know that it does in things like Roundup Ready Soy. So I don't think the land issue itself is that big a deal. With a garden and all, you mean you got like 10 acres of field, you're going to be starting on a relatively small area. In fact, you should be. I mean, when you go to start gardening, it's amazing how big a garden people think they can handle. And a lot of times people are better off with, you know, five or six, ten-foot, eight-foot rows or something like that to get going uh, and something close to the house and, and just see how things go in your first year. If you don't have any really weird results, you're probably okay. I would, with gardening, I would go to very intensive soil management, mulch and sheet mulch, compost, things like that, uh, take a look at the soil, and uh, start building healthy topsoil. Uh, with a property that large, then you got to decide what you're going to want to do with it long term. With a 10-acre field, that's a lot of stuff to mow, and it's why a lot of people in those situations do um, hay operations because you know you can cut it a few times a year. You put some bales up, and either you sell them, or you know people come and pick them up and pay for them, or you just leave them there rot, and you still get your agricultural exemption. And boy, I'll tell you, a lot of that happens in Texas. Um, when we had a drought a few years ago, I didn't see much hay laying in rotten. I saw hay on trucks going up to, like, Arkansas and, and Missouri and stuff like that. But uh, many years, I see round bales just sit there until they rot to nothing. And it, it's, it, it's being done just so that that landowner can claim that annual exemption and the little bit of money it costs to hay and bale that stuff up and put it at the end of the row so when the ag inspector comes by and looks at it, yeah, they're growing hay, is, is, is sufficient to be worth not paying the taxes on the property. Um, so I think you got to figure out now what do you want to do with it. you want to hay it? I, I wouldn't. But, you know, do you have an ag exemption that you're going to have to maintain? You can do that through grazing. Uh, you can do that through some sort of civil pasture or what have you, but your majority of that property is probably needed to go into some sort of perennial architecture. So that's just something to be thinking about. But I, I, I would not hesitate to buy property that was conventionally farmed. I've seen way too many conventional farms turned into organic farms and do, or permaculture farms and do absolutely outstanding. Mark Shepard's New Forest Farm is a perfect example of that. That was a place that had been farmed into desert. Basically, it was hard, depleted red clay. You know, and, and 15 years later, it's it's an, it's an amazing, you know, almost almost a natural oasis. And it was just done with grazing and basic pasture management and some, you know, uh, basically a savanna mimic and uh, key line design and and deep, uh, basically deep uh, plowing. Uh, you know, one. I'm trying to think of the subsoil plowing, right? So he's running a subsoiler through it. And like he said, the first year that he did it, like it only went down like a couple of inches. And in the second year, it went down a little bit more. And by the third year, it went down like as deep as it would go. And black soil came up from a foot deep where it used to be nothing but clay. So I, I, I would not hesitate to buy land like that unless you, in your research, if you find out some really long-term herbicide, some of them with a half-life of like 20 years, and there are some of them out there. The names escape me. You know, find out exactly what was used, 
how long it was used and how it was used, and then find out you know what is the recovery period from it. But yeah, and your glyphosate, your uh, atrazines, things like that, they clean up relatively quickly. Um, it's what happens when they end up in our groundwater, what happens when they end up in our food that are the real problem. Next up, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, maybe I'm being a little bit too much of an ass when I like pick on people for unboxing videos. So if you, I have actually had a lot of people ask me, what the hell is an unboxing video? Okay, so here's first of all what an unboxing video is. It's, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's like a person says, well, I just ordered the new uh, Elodium P32 explosive space modulator, right? Uh, to blow up the earth from the Martian guy from uh, uh, Bugs Bunny, right? And here's the box. And, like, some of these, they'll, like, turn the box all around, show you all the sides of the box, and then they open it, and they open it really, and they show you inside the box before they take it out. And they take out the items one at a time. They show you how it's packaged. It's To me, it's very weird. But I had a couple people explain to me reasons that they would watch one. And some was, like, well, the product, you know, is advertised on Amazon or whatever. It doesn't really explain, like, what it comes with, right? Like, what comes with it. Do I get the accessories, etc.? So you know that kind of makes I, I can see that you know like sometimes they don't even have like a you know, picture of the side of the box that shows like you know what's contained or whatever. So I, I guess I can understand that. A lot of people say like if I'm considering buying something, um, if unboxing is part of a review, and it gives me confidence the way it's shipped or whatever. So I guess there's some. Chris Starr, who's a good friend of mine, uh, works in the pet industry. So, you know, he does unboxing videos and it's talking about a supplier of maybe fish or snakes or something like that. How they're shipped. Are they alive when they get there? Okay, that's, you know, that's all good and well. But the majority of these videos are just weird to me. So I'll admit there might be some potential. But I mean, I, like the first time I came across one of these, I'm like, what in the actual hell did I just see? And apparently, this is like a thing. For those of you that know, it's like a big thing. It's like a whole genre of videos. There's people that sit around and binge out on unboxing videos. So I'll, I'll, my new stance on it, since I heard from some of you that said there's legitimate reasons, is some of this stuff makes sense, but most of it I still I just don't get it. And apparently, it's like a huge thing with kids. Like, and not just toys either. Like, just all, like, well, I want to see this unboxed. I want to see this unboxed. I, and, and I, I, I I understand, like, see, I've sat through some of them. I've sat through some of them because I wanted to know about the product. But I usually fast forward to, like, well, here's the box. Oh, crap, not this again. But I guess there's been some where, like, if you want to know what all the accessories to something are or something like that, they, they seems like a, a good time to do it when you're removing it from the case. But overall, I... I don't get it. And if you're making a living off of it, God bless you. There's somebody for everyone, I guess. Uh, next, I have a question on subsoil in containers. Well, actually, before that, I want to I actually save a comment from Pat the Leo on um, on these unboxing things. I'll, I'll just read it real quick. I thought it was the other side of the story, and I want to be fair in any issue, right? He says, unboxing, a huge help for the Internet Amazon age. Sometimes when shopping online, I don't even have an option to read the back of the box of the product I want. Unboxing videos help with that. The actual weight and size of the item I want is described, and sometimes size comparisons are done during unboxing. I can see the surprises, let down expectations of a customer first describing the experience. Oh, I thought this texture was going to be smooth, but it's actually quite rough. But Jack, I agree. If all the video does is a basic unbox, then yeah, a waste of my time. 
like you always say, does it create value? Some unboxings bring great value, some don't. My next unboxing video hopefully won't be a waste of anybody's time. Ha, ha, ha. So Pat does these videos. So Pat, I need you no offense uh, by the fact that you do unboxing videos, but in general, I'll get it. All right. Uh, and as far as like, is it smooth or rough? Like, that's a product review to me. Like, I don't need to see the box to know, like, okay, this knife's actually kind of rough. It sticks in your pants when you go to deploy it one handed or whatever. I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I guess it's a, and I'll, again, I'll, I'll say it. I've seen reviews that start with the product in the box that are useful reviews. So I don't really see those as unboxing videos as a genre. Anyway, um, this comes from Kiernan. Kiernan says, Hi, Jack, is it a good idea or a waste of time to put a thick layer of subsoil, six inches or more, beneath the topsoil in large self-contained herb and flower beds, a very large planter pot, etc., to simulate nature? Um, that is, does subsoil perform a useful function in helping to prevent the loss of nutrients, minerals, etc., caused by the rainwater flowing down and fast out the bottom of large pant plots, washing nutrients away with it? Also, does subsoil help slow down the loss of water, especially in dry weather? I'm using a plastic half barrel, 200 liters cut into, as well as some old plastic home heating oil tanks cut into and laying on their flat side as planters. Also, I'm looking at installing more of the same soon. Regards, Kiernan. Um, so, Kiernan, here's my deal with that. No, don't do it. it it's, it's a reasonable question to ask, but it, it really doesn't make any sense, right? So the reason it's reasonable is we want to do the best we can to emulate nature. So our soil in nature has a topsoil and a subsoil and then a substrata layer, and that's the basic layers of the soil. We'll have a humus layer usually on top, which is your organic matter that's not quite broken down yet. Your topsoil has incorporated organic matter. Where we officially separate from, from topsoil to subsoil is where we're lacking any organic matter in the soil. There's no longer any organic matter. There may be a particle or two driven down there by a deep taproot of a tree that goes into the subsoil that's primarily just looking for water, but there's no real organic matter content in our subsoil. So since that's nature, why wouldn't we emulate that in a container? And that's because our plants are much happier growing in topsoil. In fact, in nature, about 90% of root mass of almost everything that grows is in the topsoil. Now, again, trees will send deep roots down into subsoil. They'll send it into fissures in rocks. They'll send it anywhere. And they will do some mining of minerals from there in some instances. Um, but it's primarily a, a ploy to be anchored, so don't fall over, and water. And you'd be amazed at the hair root structure of many tree roots. The, the stuff we don't see is pretty impressive and pretty shallow. I remember seeing some really big trees come down in the, in the Washita Mountains in an ice storm. And it was amazing how big and shallow some of the root nets were. Now, some of the reason for that was because the, the soil period was so shallow. And it would get to impermeable rock, granite, and it couldn't get in there. And it didn't get into enough fissures to hold the tree up when the ice came. But it was still an impressive show of root structure. Now, as far as you know, when you water a container, if you have a lot of water coming out the bottom, can that leach away some of your nutrient? The answer is yes, it can. And that's why we shouldn't water you know, container plantings until they're just pouring water out of the bottom of them because then we're overwatering. So I, I, I'm going to advise you simply to use a good soil mixture. 
uh, with good organic matter content. If you want to make sure you have access to things like minerals and nutrients, you know, use things like, like azomite and other rock dust, um, adding a bit of, uh, of horticultural dry molasses is a great way to stimulate biological activity in there. Uh, actually collecting some of the kind of rotted and, and fungally inoculated forest debris and putting that on the top of your soil and covering it with some like forest litter. Uh, if you're responsible about how you harvest that, it's actually a great way to inoculate that and mimic nature that way. But if you gave plants a choice to be in a place where they had you know, a foot of topsoil and then three foot of subsoil before they hit the substrata, which is your rock layers and things like that, or having four feet of topsoil, one feet of subsoil, and then you know hitting rock strata, they take the four feet every single time. In fact, what trees do is build topsoil. They build it in many ways. They build it by driving things down into that subsoil, and they build it by dropping leaf litter and humus that builds the soil up over time. And by retaining things, by reducing erosion, things like that. So the only thing that putting a heavy subsoil in a container would do is effectively reduce the size of the good part of the container, and it would actually make it more likely for your plants to develop wet feet and wet roots and not do well. Uh, and you want container plants to hold a lot of moisture, but when they've exceeded their capacity, you want them to drain easily. Personally, for containers, I am a huge fan of going the route of doing things in a, in a way where you're creating wicking beds. And that solves a lot of the problems right there because then we're never overwatering and we're watering from the bottom. In that instance, what we create is basically some sort of a rock layer, a gravel layer, lava rock or what have you, that effectively becomes the substrata. But it's got a lot of space in it so that we can hold water there. Then we have a separational layer which would be like this micro layer of subsoil, if you want to think about it that way, and then a very deep layer of high-quality topsoil. Of, and again, it's not only topsoil, it's more of a planting mix in these things. So that's the approach I would take. I would never put like a big you know, layer of clay, which is your, your number one subsoil in America is clay. Um, in nature, <clears throat> a lot of that subsoil eventually gets converted into topsoil, And in nature, actually, that subsoil creates quite a bit of runoff. Because as the groundwater permeates through the topsoil and gets down to the subs subsoil, it has a lot harder time penetrating, kind of like you're alluding to. But remember, water is going to flow, whether it's above ground or below ground. And right now, with all of this agricultural excessive use of nutrient that we have, part of the reason we have a dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico every year from all of the nutrient that's flowing downstream from the, on the Mississippi River is exactly that. All that, crop weight, uh, all that cropping and irrigation is creating groundwater flow that ends up in our rivers and streams. So just don't do it. So this, this came to me from Brenton, Canada, and I'm going to tell you that it is not um, a PG article. It's written very much with adult language. The title of it um, is The Best Fat Loss Article on the MFing Internet, and MFing is spelled out, but it ends in IN instead of ING, okay? Um, and what the. Uh, you can read the article, I have a link to it yourself. I don't want to take too long on this one, but the basic intention of the article is all diets work if they're followed, and all diets work because they create 
a caloric deficit. And that if you burn more calories than you consume, then your body must get the additional calories from somewhere. That would be your fat reserves, and you will lose weight. It even gives you a mathematical formula that I'm like in 98% agreement with that you can determine what your caloric intake needs to be based on your current weight and how active you are. And if you maintain that caloric level or lower, you will lose weight. It says that you know it doesn't matter if you're on an 800-calorie extreme weight loss diet that's all carbs uh, or mostly carbs and very little protein and very little fat or mostly fat, very little carbs and some protein or however you do it out. If you restrict somebody to 800 calories and they're, they're moving and breathing at all, they're going to lose weight. This is correct. And as many of you guys know, I'm a huge proponent of things like paleo and specifically low-carb. And I wanted to talk about this because of how those two worlds can... Because it seems like, well then, why would you care, right? Well, again, the contention here is all diets work if they're followed properly. So the contention here is not that paleo or primal or low-carb or you know, the zone or whatever, or a vegan diet or whatever doesn't work as far as the weight loss goal alone. It is that they all work, but only if they create a caloric deficit. So why do I personally believe that people are generally highly successful when they go the route of low carbohydrate? Because if you go low carb, moderate protein, and what would be considered high fat in our world today the diet is remarkably satiating to hunger. It creates a caloric deficit because you eat less food. Now, you may not in like the first week because you go crazy. I can have anything I want, whatever. And I I guarantee you there are people that can break the system. Not by cheating, but simply by going, although these are the foods I can eat, I don't have to, as long as I don't eat these other ones, it's okay, that can bypass this hunger-satiating thing and eat enough to overpower the system. But I think the vast majority of people, if they eat a protein and fat-based diet and a light carbohydrate intake, and that doesn't mean no carbs, that doesn't mean one carb a day or whatever, but very, very moderate in carbs, they're going to have a natural satiating effect on on their diet. So I do think these two worlds collide. Now, I do think the guy's a little full of himself. Um, I do think he's oversimplifying certain things, and I think he is speaking about some of these diets, not so much in this article but in his other work, that he doesn't really know. He doesn't really know what they are. He's got his way, but I'll tell you what I think I really like the most about his article And his methodology is, what he's really saying is, you should find a diet that allows you, if you need to restrict calories in order to lose weight, that allows you to eat the things you most like to eat, because then you'll be better off getting through it and getting to the end of it and losing the weight, and then using it to maintain the weight loss, maybe giving it a little bit more moderate acceptance. But, I mean, anyway, you can take a look at it for yourself. It's a... it's pretty damn spot on. I would say 90% of it is. And it's probably the best article I've seen on weight loss on the internet, which is what he claims with a little bit more enthusiasm. You can check it out in the show notes. Uh, Next up from Kevin. Kevin says, things that make you go, well, duh, wash your water storage bottles. 
attaches a hot article on a study that results in a native community with GI bowel problems traced to the ways members stored their water. The University of Gulf is a world-class and ranked in the top five universities in Canada with an emphasis on veterinary and agricultural studies. Another source of bacteria contamination was from reusing plastic bottles for water storage and sugar left behind in the bottles. Backed up by studies in hospitals have shown that bacteria flourish in sink drains where surplus IV solutions are disposed of, for example. Cheers. Um, I'm not going to read the article. There is a link in the show notes if you want to read it yourself. But the basic concept is these folks were... Uh, Native American peoples who had a community access to uh, water that had been purified. And they preferred it to their tap water, so they would have their bottles and they'd come fill them up whenever they needed more water, and they'd store them and use it until they were out and then go back and do it again. And again, the people started to have chronic GI problems, just like stomach bugs and stuff like that. It turned out to be that like most of them that had their water bottles tested had bacteria various forms growing in the water bottles. I, I, I thought I'd bring this up because I, I think it's important that we understand that we can be ridiculous about the way we store water and like you know adding a tablespoon of bleach to it or something like that is just not necessary. But we can also be too lackadaisical as well. My process with this is when we have bottles that we're going to store water in, we do put about a teaspoon of bleach in them. We fill them up with hot water. We give them a good shake. We dump them out. We let them air dry. And then we'll probably be willing to refill that bottle two or three times before we again are going to give it a bit of a bleach rinse. And, and I, I'm not worried about any residual bleach there. You know, you give it, you know, maybe fill it once and dump it out, fill it a second time, dump it out and fill it up and put it on the shelf if you feel you need to. Um, but the whole point is to knock down any residual buildup from exposure, especially while the bottle's empty or while it's being handled in any way. Um, and you can definitely get some things in water. But I think one of the big things that was mentioned there is residual sugar. If you have a bottle that has no source of nutrient in it, there's no residual sugars in it, and that bottle is filled with clean water, it is very difficult for any bacteria to begin to reproduce and grow in that water because there's nothing to feed it. There's, there's nothing to give it any energy. So even if like a microbe gets in there, right? Like what's it going to use to reproduce? So that is the biggest thing is when we're using things like, and that's why, because I say it so often that it's cheap, it's free, it's easy. I wanted to kind of bring this up. Hot water and a little bit of bleach when you're when you're using those soda bottles, those iced tea jugs and things like that goes a long way, and and then it's not really much of a concern. So I just wanted to bring that up. If you want more info, you can check out the article. So this next one comes from a guy named Matthew, and uh, he has a pretty cool blog, and he's got an article on it called 10 Reasons Why Why Knife Sharpening Is a Good Hustle." I, I think he really means a side hustle here. I have a link in the show notes so you can read his uh, his article in full, but I wanted to give you like the ten bullet points. Scratch your own itch. And that basically the concept there is even if you don't keep doing it, you'll be good at sharpening knives for yourself. Low capital investment. Uh, you can get started for very little money. The skills are easily learned. While a lot, not a lot of people can sharpen knives well, anybody really can learn. 
near limitless opportunity. And there's just, you know, if you're good at sharpening knives and you're marketing yourself, you can probably find more business than you want. Subscription opportunity. Uh, if you build a customer base, you can have people that you basically build a customer base that every month or whatever they, they have their knives, they come to you, you sharpen them, they go back to them. So it's a good repeat business. Um, existing service sucks. In other words, there's a lot of people out there that suck at this, or a lot of people are trying to do it themselves with some sort of magic sharpener, and uh, it does more damage to their knives than good. You can set your own hours. Uh, number eight, you can use it to build an email list. Nine, you can scale as much or as little as you want. And number ten, he feels that competition is valuable because the more people that are doing it, the more awareness is, and a lot of people don't even know there's really a way to have somebody take care of this for you. Uh, so that's the, the juxt of the article. Now, this is what I want to say. Knives, great idea for a side hustle. Great idea for a side hustle because everybody that you know and their mother has knives, and it doesn't take much to prove to somebody that you're good at it if you're good at it. Because all you do is just hand them your knife and go, be careful with that, <laughs> and let them see what your knife can do. And then maybe do one knife for them free to take one of their shitty knives and make it good and sharp. And sh So, like, it's a great hustle in itself. But I'll tell you, what I wanted to talk about with is kind of the anchor in today's show is side hustles in general and why I think they're so valuable. And this article's an example of why. What, what I just read for you is a market analysis of sharpening knives. And I see a lot of my own words that I would choose to use in talking about any business venture in here. Uh, limitless opportunity, scalability, right? Subscription, repeat business. So it makes you, when you do any side hustle, you start thinking differently. You start thinking differently. So you start thinking about, well, like, okay, I can find people to sharpen knives for. Let's think about the subscription thing alone. I can find people to sharpen knives for, but every time I have to get a new customer, I have to educate that customer, I have to go through the conversion process, I have to justify my price, I have to prove to them that it works, and then I get to sharpen their knives and collect their money. If I can eliminate all of that shit other than sharpen their knives and get their money, my time is better utilized. So you start thinking, well, then what I really want to do is build customers who maybe, let's say, have 10 kitchen knives or five kitchen knives that just at the end of each month or once a month, they just want to hand me their knives, give me their money, and they want them back the next day and they want them to be sharp again so they don't have to worry about it anymore. Well, see, that's a very business-like viewpoint, isn't it? It's not the way most people think in a job. The way most people think in a job is they give me work, I do it, I stay till 5 o'clock, I go home, I get a paycheck on Friday. And, and the last thing you probably would want to do in your job is make it a lot more efficient. Because you're either going to eliminate your job, put yourself into part-time work, uh, or you're going to so systematize it that they don't need somebody as valuable as you to do it, and you'll, get, you'll end up out of a job because they'll bring some donkey in that can do it in the way that you've made it easier to do. You've automated yourself out of a job, basically. See, so if you, if you think about like union mentality, right? With, like, you know, don't do another person's job for them because you're taking a job away from someone. It, 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 we put it down sometimes if we are not of the union mindset, but it's kind of a logical extension of being employed. If you think about the logic of the union mentality of don't do another man's job or, like, you know, you know striking and the concept of, like, 
every person has their 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 place and their role and uh, you know don't work too hard and get it done too fast because you're working by the hour and you got to make sure you you know you keep enough work to make it through the week etc if you're employed all of that does make a kind of sense because if I tell you I'm going to pay you 40 hours a week and you come in and you're done with all your work on Tuesday if I don't have anything else for you to do you just became a part-time worker unless I'm very enlightened and say like okay well What can we have you doing for this company then? And how can I give you some entrepreneurial? Because you're a, a go-getter, right? But as soon as you start working for yourself, that limitation of being an employee comes off. It has to. Now, I've seen people get stuck with it. They think like employees. They print up a card that says president or something on it like that and kind of sit around and wait for things to happen. Doesn't work. Doesn't work, right? But when you actually like take action, instead of worrying about having a business card or whatever, you just like say, I'm going to start, I'm going to do a flat out side hustle. If it turns into a business, it turns into a business. But right now it's a side hustle. So I'm going to be a handyman. So I'm going to talk to all my friends and go, this is what I can do. This is what I'm charging. Do you have anything you need done? That's going to be my marketing to get started. And four or five say, yeah, I need gutters installed or I need this done. And I go do that. And then they go, oh, wow, maybe I can refer you or give you some other work. And you start building that up. And then maybe you do put a little bit more of a professional face on it with a business card, maybe a logo, maybe a little five-page website so that when people want to know more about you, they can find out what you do and you can get testimonials from those people. But you immediately start to think, well, how do I, how do, I do more faster and better? And there's a, I don't care how ethical you are and how hard-charging you are. In a job, there is a limit to that thinking and there's a physical limit to the reality of being able to enact it from a standpoint of there's just certain limitations about being an employee, but then there's also like, do you have the authority? I can't tell you how many times when I had a job that I'd look at something and go, well, shit, I could do this a hell of a lot better. But I don't have the authority to make the change. With a side hustle, you do whatever you want. And with a side hustle, the consequences of doing it wrong or making a mistake or not doing it the best that you can do are actually quite minimal. Because... You, you quickly adjust to it. You don't have that big of a market yet. You haven't alienated a bunch of people yet, you know. Unless you're like, you know, blowing up houses or something, it's it's not a big deal, right? So then you change it really, really quickly. And you start to learn to adapt and adjust like that, to problem solve, to troubleshoot. And then this is this is actually my favorite thing about side hustles. You don't need the money. Say it again. You don't need, with a capital N, the money. Capital N-E-E-D, all capital. You don't need it. Because you were surviving without it, so you don't need it. And that means you can either apply 100% of it to some sort of savings investment, right, with a slash between those two words, or 100% of it to getting out of debt, or 100% of it to kind of a, a fund, and you kind of set it there as like a savings investment, Earmarked for growing that business if it really works well. Or earmarked for whatever you want to do. If that side hustle doesn't turn into a business, you do your next one, you've got some sort of a springboard. And then the biggest thing is it teaches you to think like a business owner. It teaches you to operate a business, and you will never be the same for it. You will always then start to see opportunities. And, and, and differently. I have, I have friends who have never actually done anything I would consider entrepreneurial. But they talk about one day being an entrepreneur all the time. 
They have all these ideas and all these concepts, and you know, and it's I saw this on TV, and this guy says you can make money doing it, or I saw this franchise opportunity, or I'm going to get a kiosk on the mall, and I'm going to sell T-shirts. These are all real things, by the way. And at first, when I started having people talk this way, I'd be like, yeah, you might get ripped off or whatever. And then I realized I don't have to say anything because they're not going to do it anyway. They're not going to do it. They just talk about it, but they don't do it. It is that first time that you take action and it actually works. You actually make, you actually create value for another person who looks at you and says, Tom, John, Debbie, Sue, whatever, what you do is worth this much to me. Here's the money. It's not a paycheck. It's, it's a willing transaction with another person without a third party. It will forever change you. So check this article out, and when you read it, even if you're not in it for knives, read every word of it instead of just the bullet points. And start to understand that all of the thinking in that article comes from taking that action and how that transfers to building businesses in general and modern entrepreneurship and modern survivalism, lifestyle design. Uh, that brings us to the end of the show. I want to remind you guys one of the ways you can help support the show is by doing your online shopping through tspaz.com. Just go to tspaz.com whenever you're going to shop online. Click the links there and then do your shopping as normal through Amazon. You help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. And remember, that does apply to anybody in Canada, the United States, or the United Kingdom. Now we are actually affiliated with all of them as affiliates. All right, so I wanted to read something that that a reviewer wrote about this book for you when I tell you about today's item of the day that you can get at our website or through tspaz.com. And it's called Ersatz in the Confederacy, Shortages and Substitutions on the Southern Home Front. And I've titled my review, Ersatz in the Confederacy, When the Shit Really Hits the Fan. First of all, what is an ersatz? It's E-R-S-A-T-Z, ersatz. Um, it's a substitution. And generally an inferior one for something else. In other words, when you don't have coffee, you use roasted chicory root. But if you read this book, you'll see that it was much deeper and traumatic than that for those that lived through this time. And here's what the reviewer said about this book that sold me on getting a copy of it and reading it and learning from it. During World War II, men and women on the home front were encouraged to, quote, use it up, wear it out, make do, or do without. After reading this book, however, the men and women of the southern home front did that and more. From 1941 to 1945, butchers may have been asked for a free soup bone for the dog. I think the connotation by that is, by the way, that it would be, well, it's for the dog, but it was really for the person to make, like, you know, bone soup out of, okay? But as the Civil War dragged on, it wasn't unusual for a Confederate butcher to hang a dressed rat in the window when one was available. Talk about hard times. And this book doesn't just tell you what they went through. It tells you what they did to get through it. If you're worried about stability and long-term security of our society and you feel true hardship may again fall our people, this book is like, to me, required reading. I would also say, though, that what I think is so valuable about this book right now, while we once again have the media beating the drumbeat of war, this time North Korea. And by the way, I don't think we're going to North Korea to go to war with North Korea. I just don't see it happening, right? So I, I'm not being alarmist here, but we'll go to war with somebody. We'll blow up somebody. We'll bomb somebody. 
I am sickened by the American people's general tolerance for war. And I'm going to tell you why we have it. We don't know what war is. We don't. No living person in the world today has seen real war, not an attack, not a terrorist, real full-scale warfare on American soil. The last real full-scale warfare on American soil was, in fact, civil war. America's always been a nation engaged in foreign wars. And we have these two great big-ass oceans that separate us from most of the nations that could do us harm. And it's been a pretty good insulator. And by the time we got up to the point where, you know, crossing those distances was a bit easier to do, we had a full nuclear arsenal, and it was like, you mess with us, we'll nuke the shit out of you. So we've been largely insulated from seeing war. And now I'm about to say something that some of you that are combat veterans are going to get pissed about. Hold your fire when I say it, because it'll make sense if you give me a couple seconds. We don't have anybody in this country that truly knows what it's like to be in the middle of a war, including our soldiers, hold on, as civilians. They might have seen it, but you don't really know what it's like. When you're a soldier, you have a supply line that's going to feed you. You have buddies that are going to look out for you. You have your own weaponry. You have rules of engagement. You could get killed. You could get maimed. I'm not saying it's easy. But compare it to being a civilian that's unarmed. That has no, there's nobody bringing them chow tomorrow. There's no one making sure that they have some sort of medical attention. And their job is destroyed because the place they worked is bombed. I don't care who you think's right or wrong in a war. What I'm telling you is historically the people that have suffered the most in war have been non-combatant civilians in the middle of it. Because they have no say-so. They have no ability to fight back. In fact, in modern wars, generally more civilians have died than soldiers on either side. And it is this fact that we haven't had to deal with it that makes us so willing to say, yeah, we should just go bomb those bastards. Because we don't think about the people that are stuck in the middle, whose lives will be destroyed, whose children will die. When I read this book, it made that more real for me. Because the book is not told from the standpoint of a Confederate soldier, but the people that lived in the Confederacy. And whether you, you know, it doesn't matter which side you think should have won the war. It's what it was like to live through it. And I think if we understood what it was like to live through war, we'd have a little bit less tolerance for it unless it was absolutely, positively necessary. So check it out, tspaz.com, most recent review where you can click to see the reviews, you can see this one, or you can find it at thesurvivalpodcast.com. And again, every time you shop online through tspaz.com, you help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. Now to our song of the day. The song of the day today is by a guy named Alan Doyle. He's actually Canadian. And I've never heard of him, and I've never heard his music before. He's billed as a country singer, but I kind of see this. I haven't listened to his other music. I kind of see this song more as like, I don't know, like almost pop blues, if there is such a thing, like a pop music blues crossover. Not quite country, uh, but having a country feel to it, I guess. Um, 
but it's called I've Seen a Little. And uh, here's some of the, uh, the words to it. I've been over the moon and down on my luck. I've seen a little, but it ain't enough. Been down to the bottom and all the way up. I've seen a little, but it ain't enough. It ain't what you've done. It's what you're going to do. It ain't where you've been. It's where you're going to. I'm sorry, St. Peter, I don't mean to complain, but can you give me just a minute before you call my name? Sounds kind of country, doesn't it? You'll hear the music in a second. You'll see what I'm talking about. But, uh, man, that's that's life, right? I mean, so many people are so worried about where they've been. And whether it's a negative thing or a positive thing, in their viewpoint, I think it's still negative. And what I mean by that is there's people that are still bragging about the fact their high school won the state championship in football when they were in school. And some of them didn't even play on the team they're still bragging about. It's like their glory days. Or they did, and then it's even worse. And like, you're dude, you're 40. That's been a while. What what are you doing now, and what are you going to do tomorrow? You know? You, you, the, the concept that it ain't what you've done, but what you're going to do, and it ain't where you've been, but where you're going to. I love that. Because that means even if the past sucks... Well, you can't change it. There's no eraser for the past. It doesn't work that way. You can't go back and relive it and try it again. It's over. It's done. But you have complete control over tomorrow. You have complete control over today. Things will happen that are out of your control, but you have control over how you respond to them and what you do in your life. Enjoy this song. Think about how it, how it applies to you in your life. And remember, that ain't what you've done. It's what you're going to do that really matters. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. you go